You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Evil minds that plot destruction Sorcerer of death construction In the fields of bodies burning Machine keeps turning Death and hatred to mankind Poisoning their brainwashed mind Welcome to the Anarchist World this week broadcast across Australia on the National Community Radio Satellite. Listen to the Anarchist World this week, Australia's sacred cow slaughterhouse. Listen to analysis of local, national, international events. Listen to analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Welcome to the Anarchist World This Week, broadcast from the studios of Community Radio 3CR. You heard right, the studios of Community Radio 3CR. This program is streaming live on 3cr.org.au. The program is podcast 3cr.org.au and most importantly of all you are hearing this program across Australia courtesy of those wonderful people at the Community Radio Network who've continued to broadcast day in and day out uh, since the COVID-19 crisis began in February March so uh, it's good to be back in the studio I can actually look at the four walls and the clock on the uh, on the wall and just think about life how good is life uh, that's if you're alive. Now, today is the 11th of November, 2020. That's right, the 11th of November, and we'll be looking at the 11th of November quite closely. There's a lot of things happened in Australian history. It's To me, it should be Australia's National Day, the 11th of November, but we'll talk about that in a minute. Now, if you wonder what anarchy is all about, the word comes from the Greek anarchos, which means without rulers. It doesn't mean without rules. It means without rulers. So what is the anarchist project? Or if we religiously incline the anarchist mission? It's very simple. It's to create a society without rulers. How do you create a society without rulers? Well, you remove the ladders which give rulers the ability to determine the lives of billions of people. And that's inequalities in power and wealth. It's inequalities in power and wealth which create the condition which allow rulers to impose their will on people, mainly through the state apparatus, sovereign state apparatus. So if you're involved in the struggle to share wealth and the struggle to devolve, that's share power, well, whether you call yourself an anarchist or not, I've got some very bad news. If you think anarchy is chaos, you're an anarchist. And I've got some good news. If you think anarchy is order, you're an anarchist. Okay, the 11th of November. What's the 11th of November all about? Well, I think you'd guess three of the four important things that happened on the 11th of November in Australia, but I'm sure most of the listeners to the Anarchist World this week will know, but most of us, the rest of Australia will not know, what is the first celebration we have on the 11th of November. On the 11th of November, 1854, that's right, 11th of November, 1854, the Ballarat Reform League was formed. The Ballarat Reform League League was the organisations which was created by the people, the miners, shopkeepers in Ballarat to redress, redress the oppression that they were facing 
on the Ballarat gold fields. Its principles were basically Chartist principles. The Chartist movement was a huge mass movement uh, in England in the 1830s, which was demanding universal male suffrage and a number of other uh, reforms. So the Ballarat Reform League was formed on the 11th of November 1854. The Ballarat Reform League was instrumental in creating the conditions which led, well, in responding to the conditions, not creating, but responding to the conditions which led to the Eureka Rebellion about three and a half weeks later on the 3rd of December 1854. The second day, you may not remember, is the 11th of November 1880. So what happened on the 11th of November 1880? On the 11th of November 1880, thousands of people gathered around the old Melbourne jail because on that day, Ned Kelly was hung. That's right. It's the anniversary of Ned Kelly's execution on the 11th of November 1880. Now, obviously, like a lot of other things, people try to twist Histories, because the victors obviously write the reports and write the historical accounts to suit them. But many people in Melbourne at that particular point in time, thousands of people, saw Ned Kelly as a hero, not a murderer. So the 11th of November 1880, we saw, is the day uh, which marks the execution of Ned Kelly, which makes it the 140th anniversary of the execution of Ned Kelly, the 166th anniversary of the creation of the Ballarat Reform League. On the 11th of November 1854, Armistice Day descended. Sorry, on the 11th of November, what am I talking about? On the 11th of November 1918, 1918, peace descended on war-torn Europe and parts of the Middle East. And this is the end of World War One, a, a war which was fought by workers at either end of a bayonet, a war which saw millions of people needlessly slaughtered on the altar of God, king and country. And every Anzac Day you'll hear the same lament that the diggers went across to Europe to fight for freedom, democracy and our way of life. If you look at the historical accounts of that period, it was quite clear the First World War was fought for the glory of God, King and Country and although the Australian Government at that particular point in time wanted to introduce conscription uh, on two uh, they didn't actually hold referendums plebiscites, two plebiscites, one in December 1916 and one in December 1917, the people of Australia, and again this is written out of the most of the historical, mainstream historical records, voted against the introduction of conscription because they didn't want more men to be unnecessarily killed on the altar of Mammon. That's right. It's all about trade. So on the 11th of November, we all remember the 402,000 Australians from a population of just over 5 million who volunteered to fight in World War I for the glory of God, King and Country. We remember that over 62,000 died on the battlefront. Remember that within 10 years of them returning home, another 60,000 died. We remember the destruction that occurred to many Australian families at, at post-war because of post-traumatic stress disorder, which was called shell shock in those days, which was seen as cowardice, not as a uh, psychiatric condition. 
So remember all those things on the 11th of November 1980, the war supposedly to end all wars. And again, we, it's important that we correct the historical account because if we gild the lily and bend history to suit the current situation, nothing will ever change. And obviously on the 11th of November 1975, we saw the dismissal of the Whitlam Labor government by the Governor-General. Mr Kerr, Kerr's Kerr, as Goffey called him. So these are four important historical events which occurred in Australia which have, which have a lingering, that's right, they have a lingering consequences for our society in 2020. The formation of the Ballarat Reform League highlighted that ordinary people can get together and make profound changes by getting involved in direct action. On the 11th of November 1880, we saw the consequences of the oppression which continued by the Victoria Police, especially in the Victorian countryside, where many men and women believed they were basically just um, constantly exploited and the Ned Kelly gang was part of that uh, reaction. Then we saw what happened in 1918 and in 1975 when we think we've got this uh, huge democratic society that the people decide who will be their government, that the Governor-General, one man appointed on behalf of the Queen of England, has the ability to dismiss a legally elected government. That's a big wake-up call for a lot of Australians. And unfortunately, 45 years later, we seem to have forgotten that. So... Happy 11th of November 2020 day. Let's move on. Now, I'd just like to remind people that this Sunday, as COVID-19 restrictions have been gradually eased in Victoria, that we will be holding a ceremony to mark the anniversary of the murder of Francesco Fantine. Who's Francesco Fantine, I hear you asking? Well, Francesco Fantine was an anarchist. He was an atheist. He was an anti-militarist. And Francesco Fantine was a refugee. He came to Australia in uh, 1924 escaping the fascist takeover in Italy in 1921. Because obviously anarchists were a persona non gratis. And he was involved with many exiled Italians, many anarchists and socialists and a few communists. He was involved in a resistance to the rising fascist tide in Australia. Let's not forget that Australia had its own fascist movement in the late 1920s and 1930s and at one stage they were planning a coup to overthrow the government. And most Australians were delighted what was happening in Italy and Germany because of the order, because the trains were running on time, because of the economic miracle, not ignoring the gross human rights abuses which were occurring during that period. Francesco Fantine was a member of the Matteotti Club, 
which had its headquarters in the Agricultural Hall opposite Melbourne's Trades Hall. And they specifically hired that hall in order to influence Australian working people and the Australian trade union people about the horrors that they are about to face in the next decade or so, the horrors of fascism, horrors that we again face in many regards in 2020. And he was involved in anti-fascist activity across the length and breadth of this country. He spent his six months of his time working in the woolen mills in Geelong and six months of his time working in the cane fields in North Australia. And in February eighteen sorry, in February nineteen forty two, he was interned. That's right, he was interned as an enemy alien by the Australian government. This is an anarchist who had fought against fascism all his life. He was interned with 350 bona fide Italian fascists in a detention centre at, at uh, Camp Love Day in South Australia. And on the 16th of November 1842, after enduring months of humiliations and beatings by his so-called fascist comrades, while bending down to take a drink from a tap, he was brutally assaulted and kicked to death. That's right. Eventually, his bones and the bones of all Italian prisoners of wars and detention camp uh, people who died in those camps, over 200, were disinterned from graves around Australia and brought to Murchison in Australia, in uh, Victoria, which had a strong uh, Italian community who built a church or a... It's more than a church, a chapel, where each of their bodies are interned in individual coffins. And every year for the last five or six years till we uh, worked out uh, where Francesco Fantin was buried, we go there to pay our respects to Francesco. So we'll do it again this year. Numbers are limited to 10. It is an open ceremony. I don't expect that there will be many people there. But if you do make the effort to come, it starts at 11am, will be finished by about 12. It's at Willoughby Street at the Murchison Cemetery. That's right, Willoughby Street at the Merchant Cemetery. We will be finished by about 12. And then if you come late, you can always join us on the banks of the uh, Goulburn River for a uh, drink. But I think it's important that we remember what happens because this was a typical case of you know of, uh, you know people saying well they're all the same aren't they forgetting forgetting that we are all individuals we are all parts of communities we all have different ideas as we've seen during the American election on, in the last week or two so 11 a.m. this Sunday the 15th of November Willoughby Street Murchison Cemetery. We will be observing all COVID-19 restrictions that are in place at that particular point in time, which means we are restricted to 10 people, but obviously we could have a number of ceremonies if there are more than 10 people. Okay, let's move on. Let's move on. I know there's heavy evidence, heavy emphasis on history today, but history, you know, you you need to understand the past, you know, to learn to uh, 
change the future. It's very simple. You need to understand the past. If you don't understand the past, we just repeat the same mistakes over and over again. And the older you get, the more you see those mistakes being repeated. Now, we will be holding modified Eureka Rebellion celebrations on the 3rd of December in Ballarat. And the number of people that will be able to attend again will be determined by the COVID-19 restrictions at that particular point in time and hopefully it'll be more than 10. But at this stage we've broken up the ceremony into uh, two parts. It's not going to be a normal extravaganza from uh, 4am to 10pm. We will hold the dawn ceremony from 4am to 6am followed by a communal breakfast and that'll be at Eureka Park at the corner of Stall and Eureka Street in Ballarat. And then we will meet again outside the graves or the grave of the mass grave of the Eureka dig- many of the Eureka diggers who died on that day who were buried in that grave in the Old Ballarat Cemetery at midday. Currently, we are not sure whether we'll have a Eureka dinner. Even if we do have one, it'll be very modified, very small, but I'll keep you informed about that. And obviously, if we do have a Eureka dinner, uh, there won't be any entertainment. It'll just be a, a small dinner, and uh, we'll keep you informed. But why do we celebrate the 3rd of December? Well, the first thing is, Eureka has almost been written out of the Australian history. And we've seen many, many, many groups take up the Eureka flag as their flag, not just uh, people on the left or the right. We've seen many businesses use the flag, especially in Ballarat, to, uh, you know, to make a buck. And the, and the tragedy about Eureka and the Eureka celebrations, and remember this is the 166th anniversary, it is if you go to Ballarat on the 3rd of December, it's as if nothing ever happened in that city. And if you go to other parts of Australia, you won't see, you know, the mass adulation you see for other events in this country. It's just written out of history. And why is it written out of history? Well, it's written out of history because it was a rebellion. It was a rebellion. It was an armed rebellion against the state. So who was involved in this rebellion? Who were the Eureka rebels? Why did they have... They feel they had to put their lives on the line in order to achieve a modicum of justice in Victoria in 1854. Now, a lot of people will tell you it's all about mining licences. It was a small business person's revolt, which is a lot of garbage. When Victoria, when gold was first discovered in Victoria in 1851-52, the Legislative Council, which was dominated by the 700 squatters who had squatted Victoria, who had you know, killed over 95% of the Indigenous population in the state in order to run their sheep and export wool to the uh, mills in England, you know, the Industrial Revolution, when they used four-year-olds, worked them to death... In the, in the satanic mills of uh, England, the fact was that those sheep were grazing on land which had been inhabited for over 60,000 years. And most of those inhabitants had been killed in a variety of ways. So in 1851-52, 
the graziers, the squatters, who had squatted Victoria, relied on cheap labour in order to run their flocks. Very cheap labour. Many were ticket of leave men and women, which means ex-convicts who came down from New South Wales. And when gold was discovered, they were quite concerned that they would lose their labour force. So they introduced legislation to tax every miner. Instead of introducing legislation to tax the gold that was found by individuals or groups, they were going to tax every miner. And the tax was quite extraordinary. It was five pounds for a plot, which is about five metres by five metres, and you had to renew that every month. And that's over a month's wages for most working people. And obviously they had a large police contingent on the gold fields to ensure that the mining, mining licence was paid. The problem was the Victoria Police had been formed in 1853. They were poorly paid. And a way to actually recompense the Victoria Police for their poor pay was by off the state offering them a percentage of any of the fines they collected. So you can imagine, because of the financial incentive to fine the diggers, you can imagine the... Uh, Anger on the gold fields, corruption, an invisible government went on and on. So obviously the people of Ballarat and the people of Bendigo and Castlemaine and the other gold fields in Victoria formed organisations in order to improve their lot. And I'll talk about that more next week as we get closer to the 3rd of December. And the organisation, which I said was formed on the 11th of November 1854 in Ballarat was the Ballarat Reform League and the Ballarat Reform League was based on some very important principles which we can learn from today. And those principles are elucidated in the Eureka Oath which was sworn by the uh, the armed diggers on the 29th of November 1854 at Sovereign Hill. Not Sovereign Hill, at, uh, yeah, Sovereign Hill. And that... Oath is very simple. It's we swear by the Southern Cross to stand truly by each other and fight to defend our rights and liberties. We swear by the Southern Cross to stand truly by each other and fight to defend our rights and liberties. The first word is we. We. Not men, not women, not Christians, not Hindus, not Muslims not Jews, you know, we, we, swear by the Southern Cross. Why the Southern Cross? Well, these cities sprang overnight. They were tent cities and people didn't actually have a Nintendo and the uh, World Wide Web to entertain themselves with at night. They'd look up in the sky and they'd see the Southern Cross and the Southern Cross to them was a symbol that they had moved to a new world, the Southern Hemisphere, because you can only see the Southern Cross in the Southern Hemisphere. So to them this was a symbol that moved to a new world to be free. That's right, to be free of the oppression of the old world. Because remember, many of these diggers were not, you know, simple people who just turned up to make a fortune. Many were political refugees. They were survivors. They were chartists who left England in disgust. They were survivors of the 1846 wave of revolutions which swept Europe. She had a very educated class or group of people who were well aware of revolutionary activity. Many had participated in revolutionary activity who understood 
they needed to come together. We swear by the Southern Cross to stand truly by each other. And then they understood that finally you need to fight for your rights and liberties. And they believed they were born with inalienable rights and liberties. Unlike many Australians in 2020, who wouldn't even know what a right and liberty is. So what are the four central pillars of Eureka, which we celebrate on the 3rd of December? The first one is internationalism. And those rot white supremacists and racists who use the Eureka flag as their flag need to understand the Eureka Rebellion included ex-slaves from the USA. It included Jews. It included Hindus. It included people of all races, religions, colours, cultures. It was an inclusive rebellion. It was people coming together, irrespective of their difference, in order to fight for what they believed were their fundamental rights and liberties. So if there's any group you need to laugh at when you see them wave a Eureka flag is that particular group. So we swear by the Southern Cross, so internationalism, to stand truly by each other. They understood that mutual aid, mutual aid is the way forward. Collective effort is the way forward. If you don't band together, nothing will happen. Individuals like myself may speak eloquently or badly on a weekly basis, but we are just individuals, and unless we can band together with common aims, nothing ever changes. That's the second principle of Eureka, mutual aid. We swear by the Southern Cross to stand truly by each other and fight to defend our rights and liberties. And obviously they understood that reforms and change does not occur by begging and beseeching. It comes through struggle. It can come through reform movements. It can come through you know, the Chartist movement. It can come through armed struggle. But change comes through struggle. So we've got internationalism. We've got mutual aid. We've got direct action. And then last but not least, we have the least understood aspect of the Eureka Rebellion, direct democracy. Although they were struggling for universal male suffrage, which means the vote for men, irrespective of property qualifications, the way they conducted their struggle was based on the principles of direct democracy. They held mass meetings. And remember in 1854 there were no PA systems, there were no television screens, they had to project their voices and we had meetings of 10 to 15 to 18,000 people. And the Ballarat Reform League put motions to these people which were then passed or rejected. And then they appointed delegates to go to Melbourne to negotiate with the government of the day led by Hotham to negotiate on their behalf and then these delegates would come back and report back to the mass meeting. So we have an interesting thing that's never happened apart from many Aboriginal communities. The concept of direct democracy has a mechanism via which people make decisions. And the difference between direct democracy and parliamentary or representative democracies is chalk and cheese. Representative democracy is when you vote for an individual or a party to make decisions for you for the next three to four years and you stand on the sideline and go, yay, boo, that's, I like that, that's no good. Direct democracy is based on the concept that 
a decision which people that affects people, those people make that decision and then appoint delegates to carry out those decisions at a regional, local, if necessary, a national level. So they're different forms, different parts of the same family. So they're the basic principles I want you to keep in mind till next week. The basic principles of uh, the Eureka Rebellion were internationalism, mutual aid, direct action and direct democracy. Let's move on. You listen to The Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. This program is streaming live on 3cr.org.au. The program is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. You can leave messages on 0439 395 489. 0439 395 489. You can write to me at Post Office Box 20. Yes, I do still answer letters. Post Office Box 20, Parkville 3052. Post Office Box 20, Parkville 3052. You can email me at anarchistage at yahoo.com, anarchistage at yahoo.com. Or uh, you can go to the Anarchist Media Institute website, anarchistmedia.org. You can go to the Public Interest Before Corporate Interest website, pipcpibci.net. We've got a YouTube channel, Public Interest Before Corporate Interest, an Instagram channel, whatever they call it, uh, pipcaus, and the list goes on and on. So don't tell me you don't. You, there's no point of contact. There are many points of contact. Whether you avail yourself of that or not, obviously, is your business. This is the Anarchist World This Week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. My name's Joseph Toscano. And if the drug dealer next door knocks on your door and wants a cup of sugar for his meth lab, don't despair. The program is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. Now, let's move on. We've had the history bit. Now, I understand Mr Christian Porter, the current Attorney General, is under a little bit of uh, stress. Now, I don't particularly care what under stress he is. Well, that's a horrible thing to say, but, you know, who knows what is true and what isn't. But I am interested in the power that the Australian Attorney General is able to exercise. Now, we theoretically live in a democratic country, and you've got rights and liberties, although I think you found out in the last few months that they can be curtailed exceptionally quickly. But I'm very interested in looking at the power of the Federal Attorney General because the Federal Attorney General has extraordinary powers in this country, which I think Mr Trump would have liked to have had in the United States of America. Uh, Christian Porter, the Federal Attorney General, has the power to ban any organisation that he feels may pose a threat to Australian society. And that threat can be economic... It doesn't have to be violence, which people think, you know, if they're thinking, oh, it's about terrorism. It's not about terrorism. May pose a threat. May pose a threat. That's an extraordinary amount of power. He can then, anybody, if that organisation is banned, they can be jailed for up to 25 years for continuing to be a a member of that banned organisation. That banned organisation has all its property confiscated. Even during the worst excesses of World War One, when the International Work International the Industrial Workers Association IWA was proscribed, the maximum penalty for a member was six months in jail. 
Now, the Attorney General also has other extraordinary powers, as we see with the uh, Bernard Caleri and Witness K case, the case that's been going on in secret for so long. Extraordinary powers, because he could stop that trial at any time. It was the Attorney General that actually allowed that case to continue. It's the same with the raids on the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. We're still waiting for the federal police to release their report on whether the ABC journalist who received material anonymously regarding the atrocities that have been occurring in Afghanistan at the hands of the our so-called special forces, whether the ABC reporters will be prosecuted for that. And the Attorney-General makes the final decision on whether the prosecution occurs or not. Could you imagine that, that the Attorney-General is actually able to jump the police investigation and the public prosecutor's uh, recommendations and continue uh, to call for prosecution of these people. So the Attorney-General in this country has extraordinary powers and I think it's important that we remember when people talk about emergency powers, the last time that the Australian Armed Forces were used in this country against Australians was in 2007 when Howard unleashed the Australian military forces into remote Aboriginal communities during the intervention. So let's not forget that, that emergency powers are not just emergency powers to deal with health issues, they're emergency powers to deal with political issues. And then, as we saw near Stall just two or three weeks ago, we saw many protests there who'd been you know, looking after the sacred trees and camped there for over two years, being arrested, not because of violent confrontation, not because of obstruction. There are, we saw the police use the COVID-19 restrictions to actually arrest protesters. So anybody who thinks that it's only the Tin Hat Brigade that gets hassled by the government of the day regarding uh, legislation. Let's not forget it, all of us. And that's, as I said before, when we conduct our ceremony at Murchison on the 15th of November and the Eureka Rebellion celebrations on the 3rd of December, I think it's important to remember that we will be observing current COVID-19 restrictions because we don't want to be caught up in endless court cases and be bankrupted for having the audacity to, uh, you know, honour people who've died uh, fighting for a better society. So, let's move on. West Papua. Yes, it's fallen out of the ground. We've all forgotten about West Papua. We're having a bit of trouble currently keeping the office afloat in Docklands. It's 838 Docklands. Now on Sunday the 6th of no, December. Who said nothing happens in December? On Sunday, the 6th of December, the West Papua uh, office will be holding their third, uh, this year, their third um, introduction day to the West Papua office. Lunch at 1 o'clock and then speakers at 2 o'clock and there'll be planting of trees. And Unfortunately, I've been roped into planting a tree, but that's a different story. But West Papua, as we know, this year West Papuan struggle has escalated where there's been armed conflict in West Papua, there's been dispossession of many West Papuans from their traditional homes, 
there's been a number of executions, summary executions, and a number of people have died. A number of people have died in the West Papuan struggle, which continues to escalate. Now, the West Papuan office plays a pivotal role in the international struggle to highlight what's happening in West Papua, the United Liberation Movement of West Papua. That's right, all the factions have come together since 2017. A united movement is fighting both in the jungles and is fighting diplomatically. Now, currently, they're almost at the stage of having the Decolonisation Committee of the United Nations take on the issue of West Papua. And the Australian government has the opportunity to place the West Papuan issue on the United Nations Decolonisation Committee's agenda. But they're not voting for it. They're not voting for it. They want to keep their Indonesian government friends happy. Now remember, there are many people in Indonesia who would like to see West Papua independent not just the West Papuans themselves, and they have many contacts with more radical elements within the Indonesian community regarding promoting West Papuan autonomy and ultimately independence. So this is one thing you can do. You can actually contact the Foreign Minister's office and ask them, why isn't the Australian government supporting the other 72 nations who have already supported the call for... West Papua to be placed on the decolonisation list. And then there's you. That's right, there's you and me. Now, the West Papua office at, uh, I think it's 211 838 Collins Street Docklands has now been functioning for almost five and a half years. And it's been structured in such a way as to ensure that it continues to function it cannot be closed down by the Australian government. Well, not close down easily. Obviously, they can close it down if they want to, but not easily. And the West Papuan Rent Collective, which I'm the uh, convener of, was formed over six years ago with the important task of raising money to pay the rent. Because unfortunately, in radical circles, you spend 90% of your time raising money in order to pay for your infrastructure and 10% of your time being active. And as most West Papuans in this country are refugees, many are out of work, and those that are in work uh, don't receive much of a a wage, Uh, we felt that it was important that we set up the West Papuan Rent Collective in order to ensure this office continues to coordinate the struggle for West Papuan independence across the world. It's not just an Australian issue, it's not just a Melbourne issue, but currently we are having major issues maintaining that rent collective. We need new members. Some members have died, others have moved on. So we need new members and we need them relatively urgent. So you can either come on the 6th of December, check out the office space, take part in the lunch, become a member. A membership is very simple. It's a dollar a day, a dollar a day. What's that? One third of a cappuccino, well, no, a quarter of a cappuccino. So if you, you know, if you're kind of an inner city latte set, you know, it could be a glass of wine you give up, or maybe a few lattes. Who knows? But um, very simple: a dollar a day. You can upset the Australian government. You can upset the Indonesian government. I mean, 
where else for a dollar a day can you upset governments? And I'll give you an example how entrenched Australia is as far as the West Papuan struggle is concerned. A number of years ago, a West Papuan activist living in Darwin was killed uh, in a bicycle accident. She was killed in a bicycle accident. Uh, and uh, the uh, DLP senator, who's now died also, was um, raised a condolence motion in the Senate. That condolence motion was opposed, was never put up, was opposed by both the Liberal National Party and the Labor Party because the West, because the word West Papua was in the condolence motion. That is the strength of the opposition to West Papuan uh, independence. Now, the only major political party in this country which supports West Papuan independence and has consistently supported West Papuan independence is the Australian Greens, for which they should be congratulated for that policy. But if you want the West Papuan office to continue to be a burr under the saddle of the Indonesian government and pinprick the conscience of the Australian government and the Australian people, I encourage you, I encourage you to join the West Papuan Rent Collective. It's a dollar a day. You can put the money in anonymously. You can put your name on it. It's up to you. It doesn't matter. It's a very simple concept. I'll give you the banking details. It's based on an honour system. Nobody's going to hand you. Nobody's going to check whether you put the money in or not. It's based on an honour system. We've been able to keep the office afloat for five and a half years. We'd like to continue to keep it afloat until West Papua Independence. So if you are interested in joining the West Papua Independence movement, uh, the joining the Rent Collective, you can leave a message on 0439 395 489. 0439-395-489 or you can email me at info at pipsy.net or at uh, anarchistage at yahoo.com So, and if you want to try before you buy as they say in the ads if you want to try before you buy you can always come to the gathering on the 6th of December at the West Papuan office at 838 Corn Street. You just go through the... Walk around the back. There's the big barbecue area and the uh, meeting room, and uh, you're more than welcome, obviously. Again, the numbers will depend on what the current restrictions will be on the 6th of December. There are special guests. Uh, there are, are a number of... Uh, there's a journalist from Sweden who will be speaking. The program will both be live... On, and it'll be online. It'll be face-to-face and online, but I'll give you more information as we get closer. Now, let's move on to what I think is an interesting concept. The United States election. Now, look, I'm not going to jump up and down because Mr Biden was elected or Mr Trump, you know, sulking in the White, White House and wants to create a World War Three. Who knows? But I'm interested in the concept of why would decent people, you know, I think most... Americans are decent people. I think most Australians are decent people. Most Russians are decent people. You know, most people are decent, you know. Why would 47% of the population who voted, that's 70% voted and about 40% voted for Mr Trump, why do they vote to support a liar, a cheat, a murderer? If you look at uh, the COVID-19 uh, policies they've been following and the, uh, those big election campaigns without masks, a fraudster, a tax evader, a misogynist and a racist. This is not just an American thing. 
We see it all over the world. We see people voting against their interests constantly. And we see the same thing here in Australia. Same thing in Australia. It's quite interesting. Currently, we are looking at the concept of climate change and the concept of Mr Fitzgibbon, who's a Labor member, who's basically said, look, I can't be on the front bench because I don't support the Labor Party policy on climate change. And then we see it with the reduction in the uh, job seeker allowance, which will be going down from 800 to $700, which is about $350 a week. We see poverty being used as a lever to drive people into poorly paid casual work. And then we see, we look at the coal industry and the coal miners who basically... Um, won the election for the current uh, Morrison government, especially in Queensland, fighting tooth and nail to keep their jobs when they know, at the end of the day, that uh, their children their children are going to have to uh, face the consequences. And it's all very simple. It's based on the concept of a job, having an income. I mean, we live in a capitalist society and you can survive... Four ways. You can have inherited wealth, which is not a great issue in Australia. It's a great issue in many European countries, including England. Then you've got investment wealth, and about 8% of Australians have are heavily geared into investments. They use Australia's investment-friendly laws to get an income. And I'm talking about, um, well, self-funded retirees have got a problem these days, but uh, using laws like you know, to uh, franking credits and the list goes on and on. So you've got inherited wealth, which is minimal. You've got investment wealth. Then you've got job wealth. People who've got a job who are able to pay their bills and maybe uh, buy a home eventually by having a secure, safe, long-term job, which is almost impossible these days. And then you've got people on Social Security benefits who are basically trapped in poverty because of government policy. So you can understand the coal miners in Queensland who are part of a dying industry, like we when we changed from horse-drawn carriages to cars, you know, fighting to maintain their jobs and their standard of living. You can understand the government reducing the job seeker allowance in order to push people into poverty and force them to take over poorly paid jobs. You can understand people voting for a liar and a cheat and a murderer and a fraudster and a tax evader and a misogynist and a racist because they think that their policies will maintain their job and their position in society. You can understand that. And that's why one of the basic planks of public interest before corporate interest, which I'm the registered officer for. I'm a foundation member. It was formed in 2015. One of the basic planks is a universal basic income. And I speak about this every week, a universal basic income. A universal basic income keeps people out of poverty. It ensures they're able to pay for their day-to-day existence. A universal basic income gives people the option of participating in the job market or not participating in the job market. And in an era 
where we don't need people in the job market in order to prosper as a society because of mechanisation, as a society because of the, you know, the, the gig revolution, the fact is that we are still welded to a 19th century capitalist concept that you need to have an income in order to survive. So we should be, as a society, we should be looking forward. Already, the people of Switzerland voted through citizens-initiated referendums on the concept of a universal basic income, which was rejected by about 31% to, uh, was it, uh, 69% rejected. But it was put on the ballot two years ago because people can see that as we increasingly mechanise, as robots become more important, as the IT revolution becomes more and more a central feature of people's lives, that we don't need everybody to work in a job in order to survive. So a universal basic insight is a very simple concept. It means everybody, irrespective of what they earn, gets something every fortnight, monetary reward from the government of the day in order that they can pay their rent and pay their bills. Now, if they wish to work, and many people don't want to live a basic existence, they wish to work, then that universal basic income would come back into the Treasury through the taxation system. The more you earn, the less you're able to keep of your universal basic income. So obviously a millionaire will get their universal basic income, but hopefully it'll come back through the taxation system. So this is the issue that we face. We face an issue where people vote against and struggle against their best, struggle against the interests of the community as a whole because their very future depends on them maintaining that job. Their very future depends on them supporting political representatives who irrespective of their personal failings may offer them a mechanism by which to maintain their income. And historically we've seen this over and over again. People say to me, well, it's a very good idea, Joe, but how are you going to fund it? Well, we've had a partial universal basic income over the last uh, six months where the job seeker allowance was doubled and people were dragged out of poverty. And how do you fund it? Well, there are simple ways to fund it. The first one is a 1% stock market turnover tax. The stock market has gone gangbusters on the, on, the, um, on the information. There may be a vaccine, a safe, secure vaccine around the corner, up 5%, bang. We could have raised $200 million in one day. A 1% stock market turnover tax can raise up to $120 billion every year. Another tax you could introduce is a 1% financial transaction tax. Today, most of the big corporations don't pay tax. They pay voluntary taxation. As you know, one-third of the largest 1,500 corporations paid no tax in the last financial year. A financial transaction tax means every time they move a dollar around, that 1% goes straight into the Treasury. In an era of increasing mechanisation, it's very simple for the parameters to be set for this to occur automatically. And you could raise almost 350 to $400 billion a year 
with minimal impact on Australian society and provide everybody with a universal basic income and drag the population out of poverty and give people the option of whether they want to work or not because we don't need everybody anymore to work. The Romans solved this issue 2,000 years ago when they introduced 200 holidays and subsidised food and accommodation for their uh, plebeians who had uh, some political power in that society because they didn't need them because they had slaves. Not that I'm suggesting we reintroduce slavery, I yes, uh, way. Now, thank you for listening to The Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. This program has been streaming live on 3cr.org.au from the studios of 3CR in Melbourne, courtesy of the Community Radio Network. If you're listening to The Anarchist World this week, anywhere in Australia, and it's not on your local community radio station, you're just listening to another community radio station, knock on the door, send them an email, give them a call, say, why aren't you... You know, I broadcast the Anarchist World this week. Are you a member of the Community Radio Federation? Do you know you can access the Anarchist World this week? Because the important thing is, at the end of the day, is we need to change. The problems are not going to go away. We need to change. And as the Eureka rebels taught us, that change should be based on internationalism, mutual aid, direct action and direct democracy. And if you're interested in those concepts, you can always join public interest before corporate interest, pipsy.net, go to the website, pibci.net, download the application form. We're grinding to the 550 membership number on the electoral roll before we can apply for registration of the Federal Political Party. Hopefully that'll occur by June next year. If it doesn't, well, it doesn't. But if it does, we should be part of the federal election in 2022. Thank you once again for listening to The Anarchist World this week on your local community radio station. That number again to join the West Papua Rent Collective, 0439 395 489. 0439 395 489. You can write to me at Post Office Box 20, Parkville 3052. Post Office Box 20, Parkville 3052. You can go. You can email me at info at anarchistage at yahoo.com or info at pipsy.net. Thank you once again for listening to The Anarchist World this week on your local community radio station, courtesy of the Community Radio Network. This program is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. That's 3cr.org.au. My name is Joseph Toscano. I've been hosting this week's edition of The Anarchist World this week. Listen in next week. Start getting involved. Things are loosening up. I think it's important we grab back that public space that's been denied us because of the pandemic over the next last six to nine months. Listen in to the Anarchist World this week on your local community radio station. Next week, courtesy of the Community Radio Network. Thank you once again for listening to us. If you like the program, Send the podcast to your friends, 3cr.org.au. Evil minds that plot destruction, sorcerer of death's construction. An analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Anarchist World This Week, Australia's sacred cow slaughterhouse. 10am every Wednesday 
Listen to The Anarchist World this week for an up-to-date analysis of local, national and international events. Poisoning their brainwashed minds. Oh, larger! You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.